0: Seventeen through the end of the chapter, so we have our scripture reading. Proverbs, chapter twenty one, verses seventeen through thirty one. Proverbs twenty one is the chapter. Uh, You follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. Verse 17. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. There is desirable treasure... And oil in the dwelling of the wise. But a foolish man squanders it. He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness and honor. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedy all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? A false witness shall perish but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. A wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes his way. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 21, verses 17 through 31. Now take your Bible and turn to First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy, Chapter six, we are inching our way toward the end of this letter. In fact, this morning we are at the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. In verses 3 through the end of the chapter, this is really the conclusion. That would be how we would outline this, that this is the conclusion. Um, And and our passage this morning, which actually runs from the end of verse 2 down through verse 5, is something of what we call a bookend, a bookend. Um, the fancy word for it is an inclusio, an inclusio, but it's just a bookend. It's the it marks the end of the letter, and we see this because if you just take a second and hold your finger here and turn back to chapter one and look at verses three through five, just look there. I'm I'm not going to read it. You can you can look at it and read it, but we're going to find that there's some very similar things here where it's talking about teach no other doctrine. Then it's talking about false doctrine. It talks about all these things here at the beginning of the book. Now, if you turn back to our passage this morning, we'll see these same things. So let me read our passage this morning to you. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. We're starting at the end of verse 2. The end of verse 2. It says, teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise, that word there, teaches otherwise, is found all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3. And does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to the doctrine which accords with godliness. He is proud knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself So this is the beginning of the end and Paul is Going to pick back up on how he began this letter and talking about false teachers and false teaching in fact Paul has addressed false teachers and false teaching three times in this letter So this this is not a very long letter. And he's addressed this issue three times. Firstly, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, he's going to address specific false teachers there. He's narrowing down who he's talking about. He has specific people in mind in the church of Ephesus in that that passage. In chapter 4 verses one through five, he gives a warning about false teachers. He he warns Timothy that in times to come, there will be certain people who come up who are false teachers. And he talks about abstaining from marriage and abstaining from eating certain foods as an example of their false teaching. Now here in chapter six, he expands on who is a false teacher who is a false teacher. So let me me begin by talking a little bit about who is a false teacher or being a false teacher. What we're gonna find in our passage this morning is that being a false teacher is not just about the corrupt nature of what they teach. I mean, that's part of it. They're not teaching what is right. But we're also gonna find that to be a false teacher What is included in that is the corrupt nature of their character. They are corrupt in character. Part of the danger of a false teacher is not just in that they teach wrong things, but they have a totally compromised character. Now, when we sit under the Bible teaching of someone, we should always have grace and understanding. And you can understand why I would say that, right? Because I'm teaching the Bible and I want you to think of me in a gracious, kind, and understanding way. So whenever we see, sit under the Bible teaching of someone, we should always have a level of grace and understanding because no one is perfect. If you teach enough, if you teach long enough, you're probably gonna get certain things wrong, to, at least to a certain degree at one time or another, you're gonna probably say something that isn't totally accurate. And and we're gonna call those things mistakes, okay? We'll call those a mistake. But a false teaching is not simply defined by a single mistake, a single wrong statement, a single slip of the tongue, something that hasn't been fully explained and verified. That's not false teaching, because that can happen all the time, or shouldn't happen all the time, but it happens sometime. Some False teaching is when a person repeatedly makes the same error over and over again, and not only do they do it repeatedly, but they double down on it. You know what that means, to double down on? I know some of y'all have played poker before. All right, because that's a poker term, to double down. That's where that comes from. To to double down is they they say all in, I'm going to put all in to this. I'm the whole thing. And they take it and they take it to the farthest degree. So they make the same error over and over again, believing that it's true. They double down on it. They they constantly affirm, and they're committed to that error, thinking that it's true, even while they deny what is actually true. When someone does this, they're not just simply making a mistake. When someone does that, they are teaching error. And not only are they teaching the wrong thing, but when we take a look at them, we see that their character has been compromised even their ability to think and understand has been compromised and what i want us to see here in our passage this morning is that there's an interplay between the teaching of a false teacher and the and the character of a false teacher and we're going to see when there's a false teacher how do we respond to that kind of person paul uses the language of withdrawal from them we are to disengage them we're not to try to correct them with sound biblical teaching because they're not paying attention to sound thinking or the bible they are not going to be convinced by scriptures because they really don't care what the scriptures say so instead of legitimizing what they say by engaging them in conversation or debate with them, we need to withdraw from them, disengage from them and their teaching. So let's take a look at our passage here. and We're going to start at the bottom of verse 2, in that last sentence of verse 2. And here we see the commands. There are two commands that are in this verse or in this phrase. It says, teach and exhort these things. So there's our two commands, teach and exhort. Now, what does it mean to teach? What does it mean to teach? When you get down to the bottom of it, we need to try to understand what does it mean to teach? Well, to help me try to understand what that is, I looked teach up in two dictionaries. So let me give you what they say. So this this comes from the American Heritage College Dictionary. They give five different meanings for teach. Let me read them to you. To impart knowledge or skill to someone, to provide knowledge of or instruction in, to condition to a certain action or frame of mind, to cause to learn by example or experience to carry on instruction on a regular basis. I Also looked at Merriam-Webster, and this is what they said. To cause to know something, to impart the knowledge of, to instruct by precept, example, or experience, to conduct instruction regularly. Now, when you think about all of those definitions, the common denominator there is the impartation of information. Or facts or truth. So, to teach at a very basic level means to impart truth, impart fact, impart information. And I would add to that in a way that can be understood. Because it's not just giving out information, it's giving out information with the view so that the people who are learning understand what you're teaching. And this can be done in various ways. You can teach in various ways. I can teach you with my words, which is pretty much what we're doing here this morning. But you can also be taught by example. So when when I was in welding school, we would start in the classroom. And and so welding's a very physical thing. Um, Involves a lot of hand-eye coordination and, and you know, you're know you doing something. But you start in the classroom and you learn all this stuff. You learn, well, this is how you set your welding machine up. This is what all these dials and things mean and these displays mean. And then you learn about all of that stuff. You know about the different welding rods. You know what all these numbers mean. You know how to read blueprints. And all this stuff takes place in the classroom. And then you go to the shop. And you get in your welding booth and you get in there and you do everything the manual, the book says. You set your machine up like they say and you put your welding rod in, the holder like they say to do. And then you try to weld. And what happens is you find out that you didn't learn as much as you thought you learned from the book. Cause you just end up sticking your welding rod to the metal and it buzzing, and you, you sparks flying everywhere, and you, you're not welding anything. And then the instructor comes in, and the instructor comes in, and they show you how to do it. So you see what they are doing. They're showing you by example how it's done, and so when we think about teaching, we don't just think about someone in a classroom standing up and speaking words, but we also think about teaching as an example. And we see that throughout the Bible that teaching by way of an example is a uh, a significant thing. So here's the word to teach, to impart knowledge or impart wisdom, impart information to someone. Now, When we consider the Greek word that is used here for teach, which is didasco, we get our word didactic from it, didactic to teach. This word is speaking of the act of teaching. And when you look at the root of this word, you find that it appears 219 times in the New Testament. And there are basically four main words that we find in our New Testament that represent this root word to teach. In this letter to 1 Timothy, this root word appears 16 times. 16 times out of 219. The only books of the Bible where it occurs more often is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. All of those books are big books, have lots of words in them. When you compare the number of words in 1 Timothy, all the words, if you counted them all up, and compare how many times this idea of teach or doctrine appears in the book, you find that in 1 Timothy, the word teach and doctrine occurs seven to eight times more than any other book of the New Testament, seven to eight times more. Now, I'm not a genius, not that smart, but when a word occurs seven to eight times more in a letter than any other book in the New Testament, do you think it's significant? In fact, it is a major theme of the book First Timothy. Let me, let me just take you through some of these. I think this would be important for us to do. So let's go all the way back to chapter one. First Timothy chapter one. I want you to see how pervasive and invasive this idea of teach or teaching or doctrine is in this little short letter. Chapter one, verse three. I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Drop down to verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Verse 10 for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. That word doctrine is our word teaching. Now chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 7. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ, not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles. Drop down to verse 12 in chapter two. Chapter two, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Go to chapter three, verse two. Chapter three, verse two. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, apt, or able to teach. Now, chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. That's the word teaching, doctrines. Drop down to verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you would be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. Verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. These things command and teach. Verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Verse 16. Verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and doctrine may not be blasphemed. Doctrine, as our word again. Then here, of course, in verse two that we're looking at. Then in verse three, this word appears two times in verse three. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. Over and over again in this letter, there is an emphasis placed upon doctrine, sound doctrine, that the believers have correct doctrine, that Timothy is to teach the things that are correct doctrine. So when we talk about teaching, we see the emphasis that it has in this particular letter of the New Testament. We need to remember that teaching as an impartation of information and truth speaks to the mind. It speaks to your mind, your thinking. And that leads us to the next command that we see in this phrase in chapter six, verse two, the word exhortation. Teach and exhort. Exhort. This is the word para uh, Paracale. Comes from paraclesis. Maybe you have heard it referred to when speaking of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. The paraclete. The one who comes alongside is usually how that's put, but it really means the one who is the encourager the one who is the exhorter. And this word, parakale, is used in two senses, two senses. It can be used as encourage, which is kind of a weaker sense, and it can be used in the as exhort, which is stronger, right? To exhort someone is stronger than to encourage someone. It can also be used in a negative way and a positive way. And, and however it's being used... Whether as encourage or exhort, whether it's positive or negative, this word is always calling someone to make a decision, to make a change, or to confirm something. It is calling for them to act. Encouragement is always encouragement to act, to do something. Exhortation is always exhorting someone to either change or remain faithful. And so Paul is telling Timothy that he is to teach and exhort these Ephesian believers. And this all revolves around the doctrine in this book. And so... He says, teach and exhort, well, to teach and exhort without a topic is meaningless. If I just say to you, teach, if I say to you, exhort, that doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything unless there is something to teach or to exhort. And Paul says, teach and exhort these things. So here we're going to see the content in your notes, the content of the commands. The content of the commands. These things. Now, these things could refer to three different things. There's three different options here. The first option is that these things simply refers back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. That's, a, that's one way that you could possibly take I don't think that's the right way. Um, another option is that these things could refer back to all of chapter five, how Timothy is to relate to the different groups of believers in the church of Ephesus. Again, that's possible, but I don't think that is what Paul means here. The third option, and what I believe is the correct understanding of these things, is that it refers to the entire letter up to this point, the whole thing. This is the beginning of the end. This is the conclusion. It kind of operates as a conclusion and an introduction all at the same time to the end. And Paul is telling Timothy, teach and exhort everything that I just wrote to you about. And if we would go back, and we're not going to do this, this would be a good thing for you to do uh, later on, maybe this afternoon after you take a nap so you can pay attention, but if you would go back and reread 1 Timothy and and write down every mention of a Bible doctrine, you will come over with more than 20 different Bible doctrines that are mentioned in this letter. Uh, Some of them overlap, but they're all uh, unique and different in some way, and so Paul is telling Timothy to teach all the things that are in this letter. And so when Paul says teach and exhort these things, he doesn't have in mind one or two narrow areas of doctrine, but it includes the whole spectrum of doctrine. Um, When you go back and you reread this and you notice these doctrines, what you're going to find is that Paul talks about sanctification, the doctrine of the Christian life. He talks about theology proper, the doctrine of God. He talks about Christology, the doctrine of Christ. He talks about the doctrine of the atonement, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of salvation in part and in whole. He talks about the doctrine of prayer. He talks about the doctrine of ecclesiology, the church, all in this letter. And that's just some of the big areas of doctrine that he talks about. And so Paul is getting Timothy ready for the ending of this letter, and he concludes the main part of the letter by telling Timothy, teach and exhort these things. And then he goes right in to the end And verses 3 and following, we're just looking at verses 3 through 5 here this morning. And the first thing he mentions in verse 3 is the character of the false teaching or the character of the teaching of the false teacher, of a false teacher. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise. So if anyone teaches something other than what Paul has already taught, in this letter, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even, and I would say especially, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. So let's notice something about the character of the teaching of the false teachers. First, they teach differently. They teach different and contrary to what Paul has already Taught. It says, if anyone teaches otherwise. This word or this phrase, teaches otherwise, is actually just one word in Greek. And it's the word that means other, as in different, and to teach. To teach other. But the sense here is not just to teach something different. It's the sense of teaching something totally different. Different, even teaching the opposite, the idea of contradicting what Paul has taught. Now, here's a question for you How do we know that what Paul taught is right? How do we know that? Well, probably the first answer that comes to our minds. And it's not a bad answer, but it's not necessarily the best answer. But probably the first answer that comes to our mind is that, well, he was an apostle. And he wrote inspired scripture. Therefore, if what he wrote is inspired from God, it must be right. And that's true. That's true. But how do we know what Paul wrote is actually inspired? Well, hold your finger here. And let's turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Here's how we know what Paul taught is correct. Verse 14, therefore, this is, of course, Peter writing now, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Verse 15, and consider that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation. Now notice carefully, as also our beloved brother Paul. So this is talking about the apostle Paul. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, I think another way we could say that is according to the revelation that he received from God, has written, has written to you. So this is talking about a letter that Paul wrote. Peter knows that Paul wrote his audience a letter. So Paul the apostle Paul according to the wisdom given to him has written a letter to you verse 16 as also in all his epistles all his epistles speaking in them of things which in which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction now notice what it says at the very end of verse 16 as they also do the rest of the scriptures, or those things that remain of the scriptures. So here, Peter is equating Paul's epistles to the Old Testament. He's saying they have this, Paul's writings have the same authority as the Old Testament. They have the same inspiration as the Old Testament. They are true, just like the Old Testament is true they are inspired this is how we know what paul wrote is inspired authoritative and true peter treats it just like he does the bible and so what paul teaches is true and to teach differently than paul is other doctrine it's teaching false doctrine so we see that the character of the teaching of the false teachers are that they they are teaching differently and contrary to what Paul taught. Secondly, we see that they are not in agreement with certain things. They're not in agreement with certain things. Again, look at verse 3 right there, uh, about one-third into the verse. It says, and does not consent. To wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. So, so does not consent. It means that their teaching is not in agreement. It is not in a line. It is not in accordance to two things, two things. Number one, it's not in align with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they don't consent to wholesome words, that sound words. Namely, even the words of Jesus Christ. So they're not even agreeing with what Christ taught. Secondly, they do not consent, they do not agree with the doctrine which accords with godliness. The teachings that correspond to godly behavior and attitudes. We we do know this about doctrine, right? When when we have sound doctrine and we follow sound doctrine, it leads us to godly behavior, behavior, attitudes, speech and thinking that are pleasing to God. And the way that Paul writes here, he's saying what these false teachers are teaching does not lead to being pleasing to God. So, the character and the nature of the false teaching is that it is totally different from what Paul taught, even contradicting it. Furthermore, these false teachings don't agree with what Jesus Christ himself taught, and they don't agree with what we know as godly behavior, behavior pleasing to God. And so, this is the character of these false teachings it's lacking. It isn't in line with what the Bible says. Next we see in verses 4 and 5 the character of the person who is a false teacher. The character of the person. So we're, now we're shifting from the character of the teaching to the character of the person. Verses 4 and 5 say, He is proud, knowing nothing, But is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicion, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So the first thing we notice about the character of this person is from the word proud. He is proud Some translations say puffed up. It's it's the idea that he is a fool. This word here for proud is not the typical word for pride or being proud in the New Testament. This is the word that means to be surrounded by smoke. Surrounded by smoke. Or something like smoke. So it could even be surrounded by fog. Have you ever been in a fog bank? Have you ever been... If you ever just, maybe you're out driving somewhere and you just run into a bank of fog? What happens when you're in a bank of fog? Can't see. Can't see. You get confused. You get confused because you can't see what is around you. Um, This is the idea here. And it's not that this person has driven into a bank of fog. They have brought fog onto themselves. They have done this to themselves. And even within this word is the idea of delirium. The idea that there is a a degrading of their ability to think correctly. And so the attitude... And the state of this person, who's the false teacher, is that they are a fool. They have turned themselves into a fool. So that's their attitude. Now let's look at the description of this attitude because it goes on, and the whole rest of these two verses are describing what it is to be a fool, a foolish false teacher. Notice what it says next. It says, knowing nothing, knowing nothing. They understand nothing. This is very similar to chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, they understand neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. The foolishness of the false teacher is related to the fact that they don't understand anything about what they are teaching. It goes on and gives another description of this attitude of the foolishness of the false teacher. It says, but is obsessed. Literally, being obsessed. This word, obsessed, means they are warped in their desires. They have unhealthy, unwholesome desires. So they are warped in their desires. They have become obsessed with something. They they have this overarching desire for something. And it says here that this obsession that the false teacher has is related to disputes and arguments over words or over messages. So this false teacher who is foolish, they have made themselves foolish, they are obsessed with arguing and arguing over words. Now, we need to be careful here because sometimes there needs to be a conversation, a dialogue. Sometimes there needs to be a dispute. Sometimes there needs to be something of an argument. And as long as that argument is based on the truth of God's word and not foolishness then there can be profitable outcomes to that dialogue you know when when you are talking about the Bible and you disagree with someone about what does the Bible say you're talking about the truth You're both accepting the truth of God's word. You're just trying to find out what's the proper understanding. That's profitable because you'll either be confirmed in what you know or you'll be corrected. But here, this false teacher isn't arguing about truth. He's just arguing to argue. And the stuff he's arguing about isn't related to truth at all because he's a fool and he doesn't have any understanding. He doesn't know anything. Now, what does this obsession produce? What does this obsession with disputes and arguments over words, what does it produce? Or or maybe I should say it this way. Where does does it come from? What's involved in what it produces? Notice what it says. From which come envy, strife, reveling evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds. Just stop right there. Let's go back and pick up envy. The word here is ill-willed. You know, in the Bible, there's two two words for envy, two words for jealousy. Uh, One word can be used in a positive sense as well. It can be zealous. Being zealous for the Lord positively, that same word could also mean being jealous about something. This is not that word. The word here is unique, and it only has a negative sense. It's a strong, strongly negative word. It means to have ill will for someone, ill will. The obsessions that this false teacher has over the debates and fighting about the meaning of things produces ill will towards people. Uh, you not only think the false teacher not only thinks what the other person believes is wrong but they think the other person is stupid now have you ever found yourself in that position where you disagree with a person and they're putting their point out and you're putting your point out and then you you might not say this hopefully you wouldn't say it but you just conclude this person's stupid have you ever done that? I have. Basically, everybody disagrees with me. they got to be stupid. <laughs> so this is saying if, if, as a false teacher, when they know nothing and they become obsessed, one of the things they do is they think wrongly. They have ill will towards other people, not just what The other person holds to and believes, but that person themselves, they think of them in some lower way. After envy comes strife. This is the word for dissension, division among believers. This is one of the problems that Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians with the Corinthian believers. There's divisions in their church. And, And a false teacher is someone who gets into arguments just to cause division and dissension among the believers. That's part of why they're getting into arguments, is they want to divide people. You know, strife is a huge issue in the church. Believe it or not, there are people in church, believers, who will just wait around looking for the opportunity to cause strife. And when the opportunity never presents itself, they make an opportunity to cause strife. This is no little thing. They wait and see, when can I reach in here and say something to divide the believers in the church? What can I do to get somebody on my side and get them uh, on somebody else's bad side? There's people who do that. And they might not be false teachers, but they have the character of a false teacher. Someone who comes in and causes strife in a church has the character of a false teacher. Even though they might not be teaching false things, their character is just like a false teacher. Strife can be a real problem. Uh, Thirdly, here we have reveling. This is the word for blasphemy. Of course, most often when we hear the word blasphemy, we uh, associate it with blasphemy against God. And blasphemy just means to speak falsely against someone. And that's what the sense is here, to speak Falsely against someone. So, one of the things that a false teacher does in their obsession over arguing is they speak falsely about the person they're arguing with. They say lies. They speak falsely about them. Then he says, evil suspicions. He writes, evil suspicions. This is the idea of conjuring up in your mind, your own mind in private, wrong things, bad things about somebody else. So once you go through this obsession that you have with arguments where you have ill will towards somebody, you're causing strife in the brethren, you're trying to separate people from the person you're arguing with, you speak falsely against them, that develops into you sitting and planning. Bad. And evil against that person. You're planning it in your mind. This is what a false teacher does. And finally, it goes on to say useless wranglings. So this is just constant and continual arguing. So what does the uh, being obsessed with arguing, disputing, arguing about words, what does it produce? It produces envy, ill will, strife division blasphemy against people thinking wrongly about people developing wrong thoughts in your own mind and this constant and continual arguing and where do these things come from why does a person who's a false teacher why do they do these things we'll look at the rest of what the verse says says, of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So these false teachers have a depraved mind. From minds which have been compromised, there is something wrong with how they think. Their ability to think correctly, to think biblically, has been compromised. That's why they do these things. That's why they teach this false doctrine. That's why they don't have understanding. That's why they have these obsessions with arguments. There is no substance to what they say because their minds have been compromised. Also, we see here, not only have their minds been compromised, not only do they have depraved minds here, but it also talks about being robbed, being robbed or defrauded of the truth. And the idea here is having robbed themselves of the truth. Nobody took the truth from them. They have robbed themselves of the truth. This is another way to say they have rejected. They have rejected the truth. And finally when we're thinking about where do all these things come from? Envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicion, useless wranglings. Where do they come from? The third place that they come from is this thinking that they have that they can profit from godliness. That they can profit from godliness. And don't, this profit is not benefit. This profit is talking about either monetarily Or profit in a negative way in gaining power in the church. So they think, if I can present myself as being godly, people will follow me. They won't follow Paul, they will follow me. When we look at these things that we see in verses 4 and 5, we see that almost always they go together and they're almost always progressive in nature. Things that start out with disputes and arguments turn into strife, turn into ill will, turn into evil suspicions, turn into speaking uh, wrongly, falsely about someone, and it just turns into a continual spiral of argument, over and over again argument. And these things come from that false teacher, not being able to think correctly or biblically, have rejected the truth. And they have wrong motives. They're trying to gain something from what they're doing. Their motivation for doing this is wrong. And so the picture that Paul paints of the false teacher is that of a fool. They teach, but they don't have any understanding, they're obsessed with arguing. This arguing destroys not only their relationships, but also it tries and seeks to destroy the relationships of others in the church. So a false teacher is not just someone with a corrupt, with a wrong teaching. It's not just someone who has error in their teaching, but it's also a person of corrupt character. That's what a false teacher is. And finally, we come to the end of our passage, and it speaks of our response to a false teacher, the command to disconnect from a false teacher. Paul simply tells Timothy, from such, withdraw yourself. Withdraw yourself from this kind of person. Disengage from them. Do not get sucked into their game. Don't play their game. Don't get sucked into their argument. If you get sucked into their argument, you'll legitimize at a certain point that what they're saying is, has some truth in it. And Paul says to Timothy, don't do that, withdraw from them. You can't correct this person. They don't listen to the truth. Their thinking is messed up, is confused. They have this depraved mind. They've robbed themselves of the truth and they have a wrong motivation. A false teacher is not just someone with a corrupt message. They are a corrupt person with a corrupt message. And the response to this person is not to engage in them, but rather to teach and exhort sound doctrine. Impart the truth of scripture and challenge the church to put it in practice. That is what Paul's message is to Timothy. Focus on teaching and exhorting sound doctrine. So let me give a couple quick lessons that I think we can learn from this. The solution to false teaching, the solution to false teaching, there's a preemptive solution and there's a reactive solution. Preemptively that means to prevent false teaching. What do we do? What do we do to prevent false teaching? We understand what true doctrine is. How do we understand true doctrine? By the Bible true doctrine is what the Bible says. Well, how do you know the Bible? What's the first step in knowing the Bible? It's real easy. You need to read it. You need to read it. A verse a day does not keep the devil away. Okay. You need to read your Bible and understand what it says. How many of you have read an entire book of the Bible at one time? Just sat down once and you've read an entire book of the Bible. You can do it. That will help you understand God's word. Do it. Pick a book. Pick a short one. 2 John, 3 John, something like that. Read it five times in a row. If you do that, you'll get a better picture of what that letter means than almost anything else. How many of you have a Bible reading program that you go through in a year? You try to read the Bible in a year. Anybody do that? You need to do that. I'm I'm not saying that I'm not giving you anyone in particular, but you need to try to set in your mind, I'm going to try to read the Bible through in a year. You might not do it, but that's okay. That's okay. Try to do it. Sit down and determine that I'm going to read the Bible through the year, and I'm going to spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes each day just reading my Bible. Keep a marker. Mark where you stop. Pick it up when you get uh, done. Each day, right there, just go right through your Bible. Maybe you get through it, maybe you don't, but whatever happens, it will be profitable. That's how we prevent false doctrine. It starts by reading the Bible. It goes on to understanding the Bible. Well, how do we respond then to false teaching? To respond to false teaching, we not only have to know what our Bible says, we have to know why it says what it says. And that comes from Bible study. And that's why we do what we do here. Why don't you think of this verse. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So that's the solution to false doctrine, is to know true doctrine. We also need to learn a lesson from the marks of a false teacher. We might not be a false teacher. You might not be a false teacher, but you might have some of the characteristics and qualities of a false teacher. You might have the same attitude as a false teacher. Do you have ill will towards somebody? Do you think badly of someone? Do you or have you created strife between people? Have you ever spoken falsely about someone, blasphemed someone? These are all marks of a false teacher. These are not things that we should have as part of our qualities and attributes. And finally, when it comes to a false teacher, And what we need to do when we clearly see someone's a false teacher, we need to disengage from them. This is not an act of toleration, it's an act of disagreement, it's an act of preserving ourselves. We don't even listen to them. Don't go listen to, don't turn that channel on, don't click on that website, don't click on that YouTube channel, don't listen to a false teacher. Well, with the Lord's help, it is my prayer and hopefully yours too, that we understand the Bible more so that we are sound in doctrine. And when false teachers are presented and they come in wolves' clothing or sheep's clothing, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, when they are presented, we will know that is not right. This is what the Bible says. will not you stand with me as we close. After Sunday school, remember we're having our potluck. Everybody is welcome. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, help us to know and to have a sense of the feeling of the need to have sound doctrine. Help us to understand that sound doctrine is based on what your word says, what you say, not what we think it says, but what it actually says. And Father, help us to always stand firm in sound doctrine and to withdraw from those who are false teachers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.